Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, all the pro plugins, one more monthly price, and now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Thanks for listening, as always. And today, I'd like to welcome our Danish friend here, Mr. Tua Messen. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> now, some of you might not be familiar with his name, but he has done some pretty awesome stuff. And the the main one that I am am grateful for is, I'll say, Meshuggah. Yeah. Because Meshuga is just unstoppable, and 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 having to like, I mean, he's he's done a lot of other stuff, and I'm I'm sure we'll go on to say it, but I just want to say Meshuga is like, that's like a, I would just be nervous to even touch that. So hands down to you. <laughs> I don't want to pretend that I wasn't nervous, and I was I was on my way to Portugal. I got off the plane, turned on my phone a couple of months ago, and then. A friend of mine wrote me, congrats on the new Meshuggah. So, I, <laughs> I mean, he would have to have been able to hear it on Facebook or something. So I immediately went to Blabbermouth because I was pretty fucking nervous about this one. Because if you screw up Meshuggah, people are going to kill you. It's kind of <laughs> like Slayer or something. If you, you can't mess up Meshuggah, then people are going to kill you. So I went to Blabbermouth to get the worst first or like to see what people were saying. And I skipped through the, the, the introduction and went straight to the comments. And the first comment, the very first comment was production is awful <laughs> <laughs> and i just got off the plane in portugal and the sun was shining and everything was just Ugh. oh man <laughs> no but i'm grateful it looks like uh, the majority of people appreciate this record a great deal so i'm happy with it well it's it's a risky move i think to to do it the way that you guys did it with it being all live i think that that's it's pretty much unheard of in this genre of metal. So I think that yeah. that is a lot for a listener to wrap their head around. But I feel like the response has been overwhelmingly amazing from everything I've seen. Yeah, me too. Yeah, the music blog sites don't count. No one cares what those guys say. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but you know. It took me a, a couple listens to really understand what was going on because... You know, with an act like Meshuggah, they have like this reputation and they have like sort of this expectation. So I listened to it and I was like, okay, yeah, it's it's Meshuggah. But then I read something where I heard that it was recorded live. And then I listened to it again and I had a whole, like it, it just all clicked. It all made sense. I had a, a complete 180 about it. I was like, holy shit, this is fucking awesome. So I hope that they can communicate that, uh, especially to people like us, because I think that that's an important part of of how this, you know, the the um, I want to say the product of what it is. But, you know, what they're trying to do 
is incredible and I and they're doing it so well and you're a big part of that so that's that's so awesome yeah it was um, it was uh, obviously not everything was a hundred percent live but the drums you hear on the album and the bass and I'd say 80% of 80 90% of the vocals were all recorded uh, live dick the bass player just does not have it in him to make mistakes. <laughs> I think out of uh, what 100 or 200 takes of various songs or something, you know, between we did like between I think the least we did was maybe seven takes on a song or something and we did 30 on another one, you know. But out of all those takes, I think he messed up once because there was one part he wasn't 100% sure how to play yet. So that the first two takes, he might have messed up a little bit there, but um, for one part. But the rest was just, you know, after when, when we started piecing uh, the takes together, it was you could pretty much take any take Dick was playing, and it would sound like music with the drums. You know, it was, it, it's ridiculous how he's playing, how everybody in the band is playing. It's um, it's not only. There's a lot of focus on Thomas, the drummer, obviously, but he's not the only one. That, that band consists of five guys who are equally focused on the job at hand, and they are all locked in with, you know, the whole, the whole thing, what, what they're trying to achieve and how to go about it. You know, we, there was one song... I can't remember the name of it, I'm sorry, um, because they some of them had different titles when we were recording them. But uh, I never know the actual names no, of songs I work no, on. No, they're like one, two, three, four, till nine, <laughs> and then <laughs> two years later they ask you for backup files from this song you never heard about. <laughs> but uh, no, this... Um, there was like this one song that uh, didn't really come down the way that they wanted. So Frederick came up, with, or Dick came up with this idea of maybe trying to remove the click altogether. I think the first one was to for everybody to turn up the click really loud on their headphones so that everybody would play to the same feel because they would do their individual mixes themselves and Thomas obviously would have a lot of click since he's the drummer but Dick would hardly hear any click on his headphones and Frederick was a little bit uh, up and down you know regarding that but then they tried to play it like with everybody listening to a lot of click and it had this like later Meshuggah type of sound but it didn't really gel and then they tried it to go the other way like everybody turned off the click altogether except for Thomas and everybody would play with the drums and this was maybe like the fifth take they did of that song and when they started Playing that, I was like, and probably the fifth time I heard the song in my life or something. And I was like, is this even the same song? Because all of a su sudden it sounded like the first two or three albums. It like sounded, had a completely different feel to it. And, you know, little adjustments like that, that actually come through very clearly in, in the music. That's something I rarely find in bands. 
I'd have to say. I was going to say, do you think that now that this is getting the attention that it's getting, that you're going to have a lot of bands coming in wanting to try to record like this? Probably yes. And Is that a nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these bands, I, I look at it kind of the same, like bands wanting to record on tape because they saw some movie with Foo Fighters or whatever. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a nice idea. But once you start calculating how much money you're gonna uh, spend on just rewind, just on buying tapes, and then waiting for the tape machine to rewind, I grew up on tapes in the studio, so it, I'm I'm not a stranger to recording on tapes. It's a whole different ball game. And once you start doing that, and you want to record live, I mean, here's the deal about Meshuga have been, you know, pretty much for the past 15 or 20 years or something, they've been writing and recording an album at the same time. And once they finish an album, that's when they had to learn how to play the songs. Now the record is finished, now we go into rehearsal to actually learn how to play everything because they would do it in parts and change parts and do all this kind of thing. This time they wrote the songs until New Year's, then they had from, they had January, February, March, to rehearse the songs and then we entered the studio in April and you know that takes a whole lot of rehearsing to be able to play something like that it was the same I did the same with the Haunted on the Versus album and I think they were like two months in rehearsal room every day eight hours a day just rehearsing to be able to play that stuff you know and you know, it's a nice thought. Yeah, we want to go in and record live. And there is some sort of magic to it sometimes, but it's a lot of hard work. It really is a lot of hard work. And I don't mind doing it, but the, the especially since the majority of the work is on the band's part. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because I just had a nice conversation with Rob Flynn of Machine Head and I just did their last single. And yeah. he, Rob was talking about doing the next record and possibly having me mix it. And we were talking about how he wanted to make it. And he was telling me the same thing. He's kind of like, you know, I kind of want to try doing this live, but, you know, like not making it, making it modern and really well polished and everything tight, but not so like everything is to grid. Everything is totally quantized. Like, you know, the record has a feel to it. Cause he kept going back to uh, yeah. some of the old guns and roses records and, you know, listening to them. And if you actually break it down, how sloppy and poorly played some of that stuff is. But when you listen to the song, the song is so great. And the vibe is so awesome. You don't notice that the guitar player is coked out and can't hold the, you know, is way, way off from the rest of the band. So it's definitely, it's an interesting approach. I feel like it's kind of gaining a little bit of steam because I keep hearing more and more bands talking about trying to record live or at least quasi-live. Yeah. I mean, this was drums and bass and vocals were recorded live and Frederick was playing guitar as well. Morton uh, had a, an injury so he couldn't play, you know, 10 hours a day f uh, because he had some crazy shoulder pains. So Frederick was ho uh, handling most of the guitar parts and Everybody was playing. Frederick was keeping it more in a way that he would be like the extra timekeeper, the extra click track or whatever, like a helping hand, knowing that he could play the, um, the guitar parts after. And there are more than two guitar tracks anyway. Uh, so 
obviously something has to have been done at a different time but everything was kept like kept kind of in the same way that when we recorded re-recorded some guitar tracks afterwards that it would be like you know go from the start not work on one part until you get it super perfect and then copy paste or something it was just like start at zero turn on the tape machine and go and if you fuck up then go back 20 seconds and punch in or whatever you know pretty pretty much live in the feel and um, i think maybe recording it live is not necessarily the be all end all of this getting this sound i think the the important stuff here is recording people playing music and that can be done in layers or be done live uh, but the the important thing for me is to what you just mentioned about keeping not keeping everything on the grid because um, to me the whole beat detective copy paste thing is uh, it doesn't turn me on i mean when i when i hear records that are like super overly fixed it just it it doesn't interest me in the same way i believe that you know people playing music and and um, keeping a little bit of dirt in there it's 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 i'm i'm not advocating playing shitty that's not what i'm <laughs> no, saying at all i'm just <laughs> but with a band like Meshuga and so many other bands because a lot of bands are actually really good these days and but when you have a drummer that's playing awesome already why would you want to fix it up is my policy on that so i completely agree doesn't make any sense i've uh i've had experiences that i never understood where um when i first got into the i guess into the bigger world of recording and i started working with some guys who were making real records they were so used to putting every single thing on the grid that it didn't matter if the drummer was incredible or terrible they always did the same thing to the drums and so it's like if you have a great drummer If you have a great drummer coming in, you make him mediocre. And if you have a terrible drummer, you make him mediocre. And mediocre is better than terrible, but it's definitely worse than great. And I never understood why they would chop up a drummer who was doing a great job. Why not just leave it? I mean, isn't that what the drums are supposed to be like? Aren't they supposed to be played, just played really well? I feel like it seems that the metal world is starting to move away from that a little bit. Like maybe it's been the grid influence has been so heavy for so long now that it's just people are starting to shift away from it naturally. I hope. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like that's what's happening. I definitely hope so. I had like a, an experience a couple of years ago. I did an album for a band where they brought it. I was producing the album with this other guy, and and he was like the everything on the grid kind of guy, and I was brought in to be the analog guy. We didn't record on tape, but you know. What yeah. I mean. And uh, and and. It would be, I mean, we were good friends. It wasn't a fight. We weren't enemies or anything, but it was like mixing oil and water. And and that making that album was, um, 
made me think because they, uh, you know, brought up some records that I worked on that I, there was, I remember they brought up this one record I, I mixed where I know that it wasn't a real drummer on the record. And I really loved working on that record. But somehow, it, it, talking about it so much with this band made me realize that I never, never listened to that album after I finished it. And, and then it got me to a point where I was thinking, but what am I listening? Because mostly, most of the time I put everything I work on on my phone so I can listen to it. You know, because once, it's, once the work is done, that's when it's really nice to listen to it because now it's not work anymore. Now it's just good music, hopefully. And so I always put my stuff on my phone so I can listen to it when I go work out or whatever. And so it's just a matter of pressing play and it's right there at my fingertips but somehow I never do that and then I uh, started thinking about you know whenever it's these super uh, 100% beat detective all the way copy paste everything and stuff it um, it's like if I'm at the workout it just makes me I it doesn't catch me it it it's just uh, I start thinking about, oh, I have to pick up milk on the way home and <laughs> pay that bill when I get home or something. But if I listen to Slayer or, you know, some old crust punk like that new... Uh, ah, never mind. You know, if, if I listen to something which is obviously very human, there's no way I can think about anything else but what's going on. And that's exactly what I want this type of music to be. Something that doesn't, you know, sit quietly in the corner and say, yeah, it's okay for you to do whatever you want. No, metal should be about, like, screaming at you and grabbing your attention and making sure you pay attention to everything that's going on. And for me, that's the difference. That really is it. Like, musicians, people trying to communicate emotions to other people, me, for instance. And I think that's best done by people, not computers. I completely agree with you. And let me just say that for people listening who, I'm sure that 99% of our listeners know exactly who you are, but for those of you who are being introduced to Tua Masson for the first time ever. You've not just done Meshuggah, you've done a bunch of incredible metal bands for a long time now. Like you said, The Haunted, August Burns Red, Suicide Silence, Deer and Grey, but on and Baby on Baby Metal. Yeah, on and on and on and on. And uh, I remember even about 10 years ago, my old band sent you a test mix that I wanted to go with, but the label didn't let us but this was maybe 2005 with Roadrunner. Yeah. So we've been following, I've been following your work for a super long time. I have a question on a totally different topic, uh, and I know you know that I have to ask about this, but uh, what's up with drums in the swimming pool? <laughs> we gotta <laughs> yeah. ask, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Um, I, like 13 years ago, I bought this house and there was a swimming pool. And in the beginning, it was in the house. It's This is not California. Like right now, it's all Florida. This is, it's freezing outside. So swimming pools is not a very common thing in Denmark. But there was a swimming pool here. And uh, f for the first, I don't know, four or five years we lived here, we kept water in the pool. But 
then we had one of those typical summers where the sun doesn't really shine at all for six months. So we decided to not put water in the pool anymore. And then it was just like an empty room just sitting there. And I had the studio uh, in a different place. And, and I rebuilt that studio so I didn't have a drum room anymore. And then I had to put some of my... I had a, drum, a couple of drum kits and some other stuff. I had to put it somewhere. And then I just thought when I put it in the pool, which was empty anyway, I wanted to set it up. And then maybe my son would have fun one day uh, playing drums or something. And then when I set up the bass drum and hit it once, and it sounded like every Bon Jovi and Scorpions <laughs> album put together played at the same time. And I was like, oh, this was so good. <laughs> and then I knew that I had to do something with this. And back then, the pool was completely empty. So it was like, it was amazing. <laughs> But um, And then I told a friend of mine, about it and he had like this uh, really fast hardcore band and he was like yeah we we want to try it we want to be your first try at it and so we did it and even though it was pretty fast off and there was still nothing in the room to like quieten it down it it uh, actually sounded pretty good so then i i don't know a little while longer i think six months later or something i did a heaven shall burn album and i told alex the guitar player and a co-producer from Heaven Shall Burn. I told him about it and he was like, oh, we want to do the drums in the pool. So they, I didn't even have the studio set up here. So we had to like run a like stage box and, and a cable down the stairs to where the studio was back then. And, and you know, just run the cables out of the window and not being able to close the window, we probably drove the neighbors mad and uh, <laughs> recorded drums here. And uh, and it turned out really well. And then I decided to, because then uh, the room next to the pool uh, became empty. And uh, then I was like, well, I could make a control room here and then have the pool as my permanent drum room. And... That's why. That's uh, why, how the pool got into the picture in the first place. But then later on, I've you know did some changes to the room. It still looks very much like a pool, so it's kind of weird looking, but uh, it sounds really good, I think. And now I built like a like a terrace or like a shelf in one end of the pool, so you can. If you put up the drums there, you can get like a tighter, not so reverby drum sound. And you can still get the pool reverb, but just by letting the room mics, depending on how loud you make the room mics. But if you put the drums at the bottom of the pool, which is what we did on Unseen by the Haunted, uh, is one I can remember. And then you can't really, I mean, you can shut down the room mics, but you're always going to get a pretty decent amount of pool reverb in the overhead mics, no matter what you do. So it's, it's a different sound, but it's a really nice sound, I think. So from the bottom of the pool to the ceiling, that must be like what, like 16 feet or 20 feet? That's something like... Something like that? Four four meters. I, I'm not sure how much that is. In so it's 12 feet. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, 
something like that, I think. Still pretty tall. So that did you? What else did you do to treat it besides build the the? Uh, I guess the move, the floating stage. What else did you do? Put a bunch of stuff in there, like extra guitar cabinets that I can't keep in uh, in my ISO booth, which just happens to be the sauna, of course, because uh, it's a pool. So of course, there's a sauna right next to it, and that's where I put all my caps. And <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it it really is like a swim society. Except for the water. <laughs> I kind of want to start a band now and come record a song with you just so I can experience recording drums in a pool. I think that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard in my uh, entire audio uh, life. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I mean, I... Uh, but I've always wondered about the, it. The best feeling is... I, I mean, I when I was 12 years old, I used to be a drummer. I'm not a drummer now, but, uh, you know, I s still sit down behind the drum kit every once in a while. And when you put on the, your headphones and, and, and you got a good, you know, money to set up and then you hit that kick, it ju it's just the best feeling because the reverberation of, of the room and... And then with uh, all the, you know, the nice monitors, it's like the boombox that uh, some drummers uh, use for in-ear monitoring. That, you know, boomy thing that goes, sends vibrations through the chair and stuff. Oh, I know what it's you're It's kind of about. like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing feeling to play drums in the pool, I think. I wish I was a, a better drummer so I could uh, do it more often. Do you ever have situations where the room is just too lively for what you're trying to record? Yeah, but when I put the drums up on the shelf, I can control okay. it. It's 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 not a it hasn't been an issue yet. I mean, if I you know every I I try to talk to the band about what we want to achieve with this recording before we set up, so that I know that where to set it up. Because if you set up at the bottom of the pool and then they say in the mix that we really would like this to sound like more like Boney M or 70s disco. It's not going to happen <laughs> <laughs> because you got uh, everything going, you know. Um, you you get the initial hits, but you get some reverb from the overheads and, and you can't kill that. So, And it happened a couple of times where we weren't clear about what we wanted before we started and then then you have to, you know, work a little bit harder. But, you know, it, it's, it's not usually a problem. So speaking of getting clear with bands in advance, do you have a process that you follow when you start on a new project in order to get everybody on the same page? Well, every project is different. So it's... Uh, there are so many different ways to do these projects. Of course, I try to talk it through to make it like... Uh, where are we going to record? Am I going to record or am I going to mix? And how are you going to record if I'm not going to be there to do it, if I'm only mixing? And try to make sure I know as much as I can about what's going on until I get the, the, the files for the mix. So, yeah, I try to talk about... But it's not like uh, I have a set formula. I, t I try to write down some rules once, but then... You know, you put down a bunch of pointers and you think you covered 
everything <laughs> there is to know about how to record an album and then you get the files and you find out that the guitar player was recording everything upside down and <laughs> picking along the strings instead of stroking you know so it goes <laughs> instead of deca, deca, deca. Yeah. <laughs> you know you, you just can't cover every possible thing that can go wrong i tried but i didn't succeed so you know i try to talk to people and and get an idea of what it is and and have if if they're recording without me have them send files for me to check before they record 20 songs so that i have a chance to say oh could you maybe do something different before you record the rest of the songs because this isn't good makes sense but so much uh, but you know when 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 bands are here i like to if they can possibly do demos first but i don't like to over i don't like to like kill the whole experience but because that's what happens for me if if i listen too much to the demo i find that i uh, start to try and copy the demos and i don't think that's the best way to do it i like to you know when you record drums and there's just one shitty guide guitar for instance <clears throat> everything is so naked so you can hear all the things that are not there yet but if you get a full production for backing uh, of backing tracks for the drummer to play to it's it, it's not as easy to hear all those things that might be good for the music do you know what i mean get those ideas in and and i like to build everything sort of from scratch you know it, it obviously this is different from for every production but the idea i think is really good and is really where i find that we get a lot of new creative ideas and and take the music to different places than where everybody i like people to you know go home with something they didn't expect to go home with you know go home with a little bit more than what they expected you know i find that like you said it totally depends on the project though because like for instance there's some bands like black dahlia murder who they'll do the, they'll record a demo of the album with every single part on it before and then we'll come in to record and then They're so good, though. They're so good, and their songwriting is so good that that's perfect. You know exactly what is expected and what's supposed to come of the situation, and for some reason it's just great. And the, I don't know, the magic comes out in the recreation of it for some reason. But with other bands, that totally kills the creativity. So it's it's just interesting to me when when it's appropriate for a band to do a complete demo and when not and i sometimes i feel like the better the band is or the more skilled it is the more it doesn't bother me if they go all the way but i think also it also depends on how much the band wants out of the producer right like if some some bands yeah. don't want you to have any influence besides just making it sound good i think yeah exactly and 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 bringing it back to mishuga i mean and recording live obviously if you're recording live you don't you don't have the option of changing a shitload of parts because people are not going to be able to play it so so in that case it's extremely good to make very thorough 
demos. So you you've had a chance to listen to it as music without having to play it at the same time and just listen to it as music and make sure all the parts are good the way they are. So you can go in and perform what you already agreed on live. So of course there are, you know, different situations and but I I kind of like to listen to kind of shitty demos. I think that's very inspirational. You know, even a tape recorder and they don't exist anymore, <laughs> I know, but <laughs> for the old people, a tape recorder in the rehearsal room. Well, now it's an it's, iPhone uh, in the rehearsal room. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> jo- Joey, don't you make your bands do complete demos? Yes. It happened when I was pretty much kind of like not very well educated in how music business works and The issue was I felt like I was being paid to record an album, but what I was actually doing was recording an album, writing songs, playing guitar, mixing, editing, mastering. And that's when I kind of solved the problem in two ways. One way is I got a lawyer and changed all my contracts and made them proper. And the second thing I did is I, I don't like to really write music, so I would just tell the bands, like, I'm not even setting your dates like uh, that's what we do is basically hold the dates hostage until they gave us a demo so if they never turned in a demo then dates were never set and then you know the record would never happen so i said you know give me a demo i want to hear what you're going for even if it's not like exactly what you want the song to be that's fine as long as you can bring in the rough idea we can mold it we can play with it we can change it And uh, even, you know, people would still try and send in the demos like without vocals. And I'd be like, no, that's as soon as vocals are on this song, it's going to change everything. So it's you still need to do the vocals as well, because that completely changes the song. So that was a huge game changer for me, because as soon as I did that, I was able to hire, you know, people to track guitars for me people to edit vocals you can't do those things when a band comes in and they don't have stuff to work on because then you just have a bunch of engineers sitting around your house doing nothing because you're too busy trying to write a song like how can you turn this into a profitable business when you don't know what the fuck you're going to be doing when they show up yeah you know i don't know if you've experienced this but band shows up and there's four weeks to do you know 12 songs but they've only written three songs and they and they're a very progressive technical band so it's not just like they could shit out four chords and some double bass like there's serious serious stuff that they write that's a shame yeah i mean i'm talking like <laughs> <laughs> i'm talking like serious bands though that you know are out there coming in with literally three songs and um so i feel like for a lot of the younger bands like i'm talking maybe between the age ranges of 18 through 25 who grew up in the 100 digital era it's probably a good idea to make them demo it because they don't always have the same background of playing together and writing together and doing things that I guess when I was in a band and the bands I grew up with all played together and recorded together and did all that stuff and so even if guys have adopted or adapted to the new ways of recording they can still get together and play and make music but a lot of the younger bands don't really do that they didn't grow up that way they don't have those skills so I find that with them you have to make them do a demo or you're going to end up in a situation like I've been where they literally have no songs. But 
but there's a budget and a label who expects it to be done. Yeah, well, lucky for me, I've never been in that situation. Good. (laughs) (laughs) It's a shame it was a uh, prog band, because uh, if only it was ACDC, you'd be all right. (laughs) If it was ACDC, I'd be more than all right. But, But yeah, it was definitely... It tends to happen with the more technical bands. So, And speaking of technical, I do have a, a more technical question, which is, so on the topic of Meshuggah or bands like Meshuggah that use eight strings or tune super low, there's a lot of low end to control in the mix. Do you, What do you do to control low end in your mixes or do you do anything special when you're dealing with tunings that are that low? No. <laughs> Good answer. You know, uh, it's... Per- perfect answer. <laughs> I, uh, well, actually, but actually, it, it, I've always since I started out when I when I started out in um, doing studio work back in the '90s, early '90s, I guess it. Um, I always tried to make everything sound. You know the uh, the better than everything else or something. I always try to set the. Uh, you know, I, I like my guitars to have a lot of low end and a lot of uh, high end as well. And all these things I since learned is maybe not always a good idea, but that's how I started. And 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 everything I've ever ever done has been by going by my gut feeling and it seems to have been working out pretty well for me so I've never really felt like changing that recipe having said that of course I do some things but it's not really it doesn't feel like a task for me to control the low end it's I like to use a four band compressor for bass for instance to make sure that whenever he moves around on uh, on the notes that you know it's kept in place but sometimes it's not really necessary or the compressor's hardly working at all or just touching the material so it's it's not like a rule that's set in stone for me it's uh, and sometimes i f- i find that keeping everything too or i've been working too hard on controlling everything and then i you know try turning off one of these darn things that holds everything together and then i find that the whole mix opens up and and becomes lively again by you know turning off a drum compressor or bass or whatever something that i thought was absolutely dead necessary for this mix to work and then it seems that it just works so much better if i take it off and so you'll find some a lot of mixes i did where i uh, use samples uh, on kick and snare. I, I rarely use samples on toms, but on uh, bass drum and snares, uh, I do a lot of times, like so many other people. But sometimes I don't, and um, and sometimes it just works better, you know. So. The easy answer really is the first one. No. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not like I got this complex setup with, a, you know, parallel compression or doing sidechain things to other things and all that. It's It really is uh, quite simple. 
in my mind at, at least it might not be simple to everybody else and then it's uh, a matter of having everything find its place so it's not like I spend uh, seven hours getting the drums right for one song and then move on to the next thing it's like getting the whole band playing within half an hour probably and then moving those ice flakes around until it forms a floor I can stand on if you understand what I mean yeah Joel isn't that kind of how you do it too you try to mix as fast as possible to the point where you have it sounding like a song like literally as fast as you can to the point of where it sounds like music and then fix it up a little from that point forward well absolutely because I feel like a lot of the best mixing, we'll say probably 90% of your mixing is going to be done off your gut instinct. And as soon as you hit that point in the mix where you really start thinking about like, okay, you know, is there a little bit too much 200 in my guitar or is my vocal a little bit too sibilant? Or when you start like not thinking or, or not feeling the music and start like, you know, uh, left braining it, that's the point where I kind of try to step away or send it to the band to get feedback and then come back a little bit more analytical later because I don't want to lose that vibe because you can just do so much damage. And usually those are your best mixes. For example, where I learned this from was when I would do full records from start to scratch with like local bands and have to do like five songs in a week. And by Friday at 5 p.m., I'd have to have all the songs mixed. And at Monday morning, you know, we'd be tracking and setting up drums. So it was always like a crazy blitz. And uh, one thing is I would mix as I was going. And what would happen is I found that my tracking fader balances usually were my best ones. And then when I got into mix, I was always like, oh man, you know, it's just not right. Like the vibe and the gel just isn't there that I had. And I would kind of go back and load my tracking session, keep the balances and then try to EQ and then maybe tweak and automate a little bit from there. So I realized doing that, that a lot of my best mixes and a lot of my best process came from not thinking about it, just kind of setting where it felt right, not paying attention to it. So I tried to like emulate that and duplicate that in an actual mixing mindset. And that's kind of like the thing I came up with where I literally just, okay, how fast can I whip this mix up? Cause I got to go to lunch in 45 minutes. So, you know, I'm just going to pretend I don't give a shit and then come back and care later. But in the meantime, I'll get 90% of the mix done in that first pass with hopefully minimal tweaks, or it's going to need that extra, like only a couple of percentage points to really become a great mix. I can relate a hundred percent to everything you just said for me it's just it's also it's it's really is how i work with mixing i i get to that 90 percent part and then i need to put it on my phone or and go walk the dogs or take a drive or you know whatever listen to it when it's just a two track because then it's music as soon as you get a slice of pizza in your hand it's just a piece of music and then it becomes very obvious to me that that guitar line wasn't meant to be background because it's so very obviously the leading melody for this part or you know different things like that that makes me and i can when i listen to it and for a couple of days in a different environment then i can form a list in my head usually usually i don't even write it down i just keep a list in my head and then when i get back to open up the mixes a couple of days later i can go in and fix all those little things like surgically you know just go in for that specific part where i know or that specific snare drum that i don't like or whatever it was that i detected but then just fix the problems and and uh, yeah 
save that uh, first basic energy from the mix that I feel that you were talking about also. You guys just brought me back to something that I actually can totally relate to this. Back in the days when I was recording local bands, like a long time ago, I remember this exact same scenario where in five days you have to do everything. And my tracking mixes always sounded better than when I started over again. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And it, maybe they didn't sound as polished, but they had the most, I guess, vibe. And then whenever I would just work on those, the mixes came out way, way better. But what's funny about it is that, and I think that people do this kind of dumb stuff all the time. I feel like it took me a while to be okay with not starting the mix all over and doing it quote-unquote properly. Like, I had to convince myself that it's okay to just work on the tracking mix. If that's what sounds great, that's what you should work on. Yeah, there's definitely a mental block there to overcome. I mean, you really have to get out of the mindset that you have to mix because really when you're sitting there with the band, you know, that point you're mixing for ego, like you feel like you have to mix and, uh, you know, so the band, you know, they, they're paying you. But in reality is if, if you can let go of that preconception and just actually start mixing from right where you're at, it's going to get you there a lot faster. And everybody's been listening to it and jiving it. And you've kind of been adjusting it subconsciously as you've been going recording. So it's already going to be half of the way where it needs to be, from my experience. Yeah, it's it's funny. But it also, you can take that attitude to so many other facets of mixing and production like too like you just said earlier like sometimes you'll use a multi-band compressor on bass but other times you won't it's not a set formula it's whatever the song needs and i feel like that approach to mixing of going with the tracking mix if it sounds good is you you're supposed to do what sounds best for the song not just follow a formula it's hard it's hard to get out of that kind of thinking though but uh it's very very beneficial so we uh, like to do a, um, a rapid fire session where Joel will ask you, well, he'll mention something like rhythm guitars or snare or something. And you tell us the first thing that comes to mind, <laughs> basically. Okay. Yeah, it can be recording, mixing, ch processing chains. Um, I don't know, anything you want to. It's this kind of meant to be fun and informational. Just like one word or, or sentences or what? whatever you feel is appropriate. Okay. We just try to make it quick. Yeah. All right. So why don't we rapid fire? So, all right, I'll start out. Kick drum. Um. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. Blackout. <laughs> Replace it. Kick drum is very. <laughs> Kick drum is very nice. Would be nice if everybody could play it as steadily as they should. Oh, that was the best answer I've ever heard on this. That was amazing. Thank you. That needs to be said every time we podcast. I feel like it's so true. I mean, who can play the kick drum parts that Alex Rudinger? You know, that's like in a couple other dudes. So. All right, um, acoustic guitar. Uh, oh, man, I'm not going to say the first thing that popped into my head, because that was, who needs it? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's a great answer. That's the best answer yet. <laughs> no, because you need something for the intro of the song, you know? So <laughs> a little bit of acoustic can be nice. No, I don't. Dude, uh, your answers are great. <laughs> I love it so much. It's so great. Um, okay, overheads. Oh, uh, 
I just got some heirloom mics that made overheads sound completely different than anything I ever did before. So I'm very excited about that. Swedish mics that have a triangular diaphragm. Oh, cool. That's that's what I'm excited about as far as overheads go these days. What are they called again? Erlund. E-H-R-L-U-N-D. It's... uh, they're not very famous, but if you if you look at some Swedish producers, I think most of them have them because it's a Swedish company. Or, uh, but uh, yeah, they sound super. They're supposed to have like a frequency response from seven to eighty-seven thousand hertz. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to buy them unless they start at five hertz. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what so, I said. But I got so them anyway. If you want to make an album for your dogs, these are the perfect microphones yeah. to use. <laughs> yes. Well, you got it. I, <laughs> my dog's hearing starts at five. So if you guys want to start at seven, <laughs> that's cool. Uh, um, all right. Uh, how about female singing vocals? Oh, they usually wear a dress, don't they? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I. Oh, thank you. Someone just walked through the room. No, I like uh, certain kinds of female vocals very much. Others, I'm not so crazy about. Okay, yeah, I and feel I feel the same way. Mix bus. Um, that's something I usually leave open. I don't like to. I mean, I I don't like to put a bunch of stuff on my mix bus when i'm mixing i save that for later i do the mastering separately so you don't use any compression usually not 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 while i'm mixing sometimes a little bit but but usually not i like to apply that later on i think you know i i never i never actually wanted to master my own thing but you know i i just I had a lot of disappointing masterings done to my stuff where I thought my own mastering sounded better. And that's why I just ended up doing it myself. And in that process, I also found that my mixes would really, really start to suck if I had a compressor on the master bus because it would be, you know, it would drown whatever, some instrument, and then you would end up making it way too loud, but you couldn't really hear it because you had some stupid shit on the master bus. <laughs> so that um, over years of experience i just learned that for me it works better to not do not have anything going on on the master bus until after and i think it's like a built-in secret plug-in in my brain that that can uh, so that when i'm mixing a part of my brain works in a way that that my tells my ears oh you know this thing is going to happen later on in a few days so everything is going to be all right don't worry about it and then it turns out that it actually does work out a few days later when i do the mastering and everything is good it's all something you can't put in a book it's buried somewhere in the back of my brain and you know do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or I'm just no, talking no, to no. myself? No, no, this, no. That's the... <laughs> I feel like that's what experience gives you is that ability to understand what's going to happen down the line. And you know what's funny is I've had so many disappointing experiences 
sending stuff to mastering guys because you know that the mix might change when you send it to a mastering guy like levels are going to be different drums won't hit as hard and all that so you have to anticipate what's going to happen in advance and hey i crushed your mix and that nail the mix mastering fast no you you did you did a great job but i'm talking about just over the years, lots of guys have really severely fucked up my mixes. And um, it, I feel like if you are the guy who's mastering it and you know exactly what's going to happen, that's a much better situation to be in than just randomly wondering what's what might happen when this other guy well, speaking of it. mastering, um, Tua, you did a band, you did some mixes for a band called For the Wicked out of Romania recently, correct? Yeah. I, I mastered those tracks, and those, the mixes you sent were phenomenal. I had mixed one single for those guys, and I actually ended up doing the master. So I, hopefully, you heard them and were, was pleased with what I did. If not, I'm just gonna mute my mic and go run outside and cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have any problem. No, I think that sounded very good. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I mean, it's um, I, it, it's not like I never had anybody master something for me and that came out good. I, Cutting Room in Stockholm did a, have mastered a few things for me. Uh, this new Mishuka was mastered by uh, Thomas something at Stockholm Mastering, and that was amazing. That was I did my own mastering like I always do. Just to uh, because it's sort of how I'm used to presenting what I do. Like this is what I think it should sound like. But they, uh, Mishuga wanted had three guys they would like to, that they've been using before in the past, and and um, and they wanted to hear what each one of these three guys um, would come up with. And it was just very obvious to me when I heard the stuff that Thomas did that it sounded amazing. It, it sounded uh, exactly like I thought my mixes sounded, uh, only mastered. And, um, and then there was an issue of bringing a little bit more highs into the whole, uh, like lifting the highs in the whole, on all the songs. And, and he did that in a very pleasant way. I think it, his mastering was amazing. I have absolutely no complaints about that no it does sound pretty great so i have no complaints either <laughs> so actually <No. laughs> can i jump in and can we do one last rapid fire do it okay parallel distortion mandolin go uh, <laughs> something i use very sparsely <laughs> i heard about this swedish band though once it was a story that The Haunted brought into the... I forgot which band it was, but they did put out albums. You're going to be surprised when you hear the rest of the story. And But they told me about this Swedish band who were mixing the record, and they thought it was lacking a little bit of quality or something. So they mixed in a whole Bathory album in the bottom of the mix just to get a bit of quality into the mix. <laughs> That's awesome. I forgot which band it was, but, you know, it's an awesome trick. It beats parallel distortion mandolin playing anyway, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, so we have a, a few questions from the audience. If you don't mind, I want to ask yeah. you those because they were very excited when we said that you were coming on. Some of this stuff we've already talked about, so I'm going to skip 
some of those. But so James Cohen is asking, he's got a few questions. So I'll start with one. Could you please describe the process of working with The Haunted from a producer standpoint on Versus? On Versus, that was the one we, they recorded, we, they recorded live, except for vocals, but all the music, except for the very obvious uh, eight guitar tracks songs where you know that's not going to be possible to do but everything really was recorded um, live on that album I think there was one song where Pierre the drummer kept messing up the beginning so they played it like 200 times or something and in the end all the guitar and bass tracks started to suck as well, of course, because everybody got tired and pissed off. So they re-recorded that. But I'd say by and large, it's a 90% live album. And um, we recorded 21 songs for that album. And coming off the Dead Eye, uh, I think Versus could have been they threw away half of the songs. I think there's only 10 or 11 songs on the actual album. And for me, that was always a shame because it seemed that they picked... They picked the wrong ones? Yes, some of them. I think uh, all the faster songs got picked because um, someone maybe on the label or something got were afraid that following the the path that they started with the dead eye that might scare away some of their fans and now it was time to do more of a slayer type record which i don't think they actually really wanted to do and i just know that in the 10 or so tracks that did not go on the album there are some extremely good songs where you'll hear Peter Dolving you know take you know, his vocal takes and those songs are just magical it was and working on those with him was amazing it would be like um getting to the studio at 10 and he would show up maybe an hour later maybe two hours later and then he would say he would go to do his warm-ups and then he'd sit around with his laptop for like three hours pretending to do warm-ups but when he finally got into pretending the booth pretending to do warm-ups <laughs> <laughs> well he probably calls it warm-ups <laughs> but uh, then when he finally got into the booth it was like you know, he would work himself into the song. The first take would always... And he would do complete takes of whole songs and just go from scratch and work his way into the song to the second take. And you could just sense how important this was, like how every word is important. He's, he's not just yelling some stupid shit at you. This is actually something really meaningful. And you'd, you know, sometimes be a little bit afraid of where his mental health was going when he finished the song, because <laughs> is this the time where I actually say something or do I keep quiet for a few minutes and let him, you know, get get back to earth and some of those songs didn't even make the album and I'm so I wish there could be a re-release of that album where the whole album because they use some of those for bonus tracks for different things but it's not the same when it doesn't come out like as a, a complete set of songs and I think if if everything came out like that for that album would be amazing because I I think there are some incredible songs on that. They even wanted to re-record one of the songs for Unseen, 
But then they had plenty of songs uh, for that album, so it never got re-recorded, and I don't think that song was ever released anywhere. So, But yeah, that was a, a really nice record. Also recorded in the same in Pook studio where we did the Meshuggah album recently, which is part of the reason why they wanted to work with me and go to Pook studio to do the, uh, this new album because they like the Haunted album so much. And uh, for anyone listening, uh, just realize that what he just said is right in line with what we say on a lot of these podcasts, that a lot of what will get you your work is what you do with uh, previous projects. So take everything you ever do seriously. Here's one from Christopher Clancy. I saw photos from the recent Meshuggah album recording where there was what looked like a speaker facing the kick drum, which was then mic'd up. Can you explain what that was? Yeah, that was reamping the bass drum. <laughs> uh, to control the bass drums, uh, Thomas has uh, some pillows or something in the bass drums, but we really wanted the bass drums to sound like they were empty, like have that big boom feel to them and uh, but but it wouldn't be possible for him to play his parts if if the if there was no um, damping in the bass drums so after we recorded everything then we set up a speaker like that and um, i've done it a few times with snare as well and then just run the bass drum the natural bass drums through the speaker and and then uh, mic the room, mic the bass drums again, and then we got that pound uh, sound to go with the tighter sounding already recorded bass drums. We did uh, kind of the same with uh, with the guitars. We had a setup with a, a Marshall, a Satan, and a, an Engel, and there were like five amps. Uh, rectifier of course um, and after we did all the guitar tracks I have this uh, from Salvation Mods uh, Antonin, the guy who has Salvation Mods, he does these modifications of the he's great the, by the way, I have a bunch of those yeah, yeah yeah, they're awesome. I have a bunch of them too. The, he has these. Uh, he does modifications of the modules for the Randall lamps, where you could change the preamp modules, and he also does the the Kirkhamet pedals. What's inside of the pedals is also what Antonin does. But um, I brought a bunch of these with me, and he one of them is like a high watt clone that if you crank it, it just sounds like everything is broken. Everything is destroyed within the amp no matter what you uh, play and then add to it playing you know eight string guitar riffs with a lot of distortion and and but we just loved the sound of it it's what's uh, it's the opening riff of i think it's the last song on the album but it's one of the songs that changed names so i'm not sure what it's uh it, but it's like it's sounds completely destroyed but that sound is actually we reamped the whole album with that sound so that sound is part of the guitar sound throughout that whole album it really filled up a gap in the sound that nobody realized was there until we did the reamp i mean it, we all thought everything sounded amazing already but then we heard this and 
I was like, yeah, maybe we can use it for one or two parts. But then Frederick was like, no, let's do it on the whole album. And I was like, you're kidding, right? And so he was like, no. And then we did it on the whole album. And it's it's amazing. It's a it's like it takes up it makes up for the whole low end of the the guitar sound in a very, very nice way. And that's kind of the same what we to get back to the question. That's kind of like what we did with reamping the bass drums, and also the toms. By the way, I ran them through the 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 speaker as well, so you'd get like every t- time he went to the toms, it would also get these big empty bass drums going. Wow! Like a amazing. Reverb. That's that's fascinating to hear. So here's so one. So cool. Here's one from John Moore. And John Moore says, I want you to know that you have produced a few of my favorite records, like Nemec and Scamp. Such energy and good taste there. Your snares have the nicest flavor. Is there something you use in particular for the snare, apart from having great sources? How do you ati- how do you achieve such tasty harmonics? Mm. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's too simple. It's the same as everybody else does. It's a sure SM57 usually or Beta uh, 56 or whatever. You know, one of these, uh, everybody uses them uh, snare mics and usually a Sennheiser 421 on the bottom. Getting the snare to sound right, I quite on Nemec albums I never used samples for drums. Those are all natural sounds. But I think on this Game record, I might have used uh, a sample for bass drum and for snare, but I always use it in combination with uh, with the original tone. I use it like kind of, you know. Usually, I go as far as I think is possible with the snare sound I have, and then if I f- feel like I'm missing something, I find a sample that can supply that and then blend it in and it sometimes is like very subtle and sometimes it's quite a lot and a lot of times I actually use the same sample but I just shape it differently with an EQ like cut off all the highs or leaving only the highs if that's what I think is lacking from the the recorded snare sound and then I blend them and feed them into a group compression so I, I I treat the snare including the sample as one uh, with EQ and compression and that way I feel like if it the sample will never be static it it will always change a little because the natural sound will always be uh, be part of the sound and that will always change because the drummer will be all over the snare drum and getting different tones from it and and not hitting as hard in some parts and th- that way it will help the the sample to not sound too mechanical which i'm not a big fan of um and that's why, but the other one is really mainly getting the snare to sound good because it, and getting a drummer that sounds good because drummers actually 
makes up a huge part of the sound. It's true. <laughs> but the 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 studio th- side of it is uh it's an SM57 just like everybody else. I read an interview with this guy who always worked with ACDC, Mark Fraser, I think. He did all, almost everything for the past 20 years with ACDC. And he was talking about what they did on the Black Ice album. And after reading like six pages in this magazine, they could have narrowed that whole interview down to, yeah, we put a 57 from the ceiling and the band played great. <laughs> and that's the album. Recording and mixed that way because he he went through every track and telling us how he did nothing <laughs> basically <laughs> you know in a f- and and that really is what it is because that album sounds amazing but it's because the band is amazing and then you have to do very little as as long as you make sure you're you know your your mic placement is good and you you capture what is already great in the room You can't say it enough times, though, because I feel like people need to be reminded of it constantly because they'll forget or try to get around the fact that the band being incredible, the player being incredible, the source counts for so much. There's really no way, no way around it. Here's another one. And we did kind of talk about this already. But Dave Vola is asking, how do you approach recording in unconventional environments? And obviously he's talking about the pool. And we did talk about the pool already, but I guess my take on his question is something we didn't cover, which is based on the fact that you have a concrete wall right there really close to the drums, do you have, do you have any ways of miking? to make up for the space or do you get any weird echoes like flutter echoes being that close to a wall that you have to deal with? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty used to recording in strange environments and I, I don't mind it. It's, it's, then you just adapt. If you hear something bad, then change whatever you can to do whatever you can to change it. Like, If you're in a different part of the world and something is sounding crap and because of a hard wall that sounds shitty, then uh, one of the guys is going to be out of a mattress for tonight when they go to sleep because we're going to need <laughs> it to, uh, you know, keep the wall down or something. I mean, I a couple of years, I've been working for 13 years with a Hungarian band called Ektomorph. I know who they are. And, and for... I think the first eight, nine years or something for a lot of albums, they always came to my place to record. And then uh, about five or six, seven years ago, uh, Soli, the singer, called me up one day and said, hey man, what about we do it at my place? And then I was like, yeah, but uh, what do you have? Well, they had a garage they used for rehearsal and uh, that was it. And then I was like, but where am I going to be? I mean, oh... Uh, hold on, let me call you back in one hour. Then he called me back in one hour. My dad is going to build you one. Oh, <laughs> and then, you, you know, I was like, wow, wow, wow. And then he was like, 
two days later, I got pictures of his dad laying bricks, and and then you know he didn't have anything studio-wise. It was basically a, re- a rehearsal room with an extra room next to it. I packed up my studio and drove down there and set up, and it was not a luxurious studio, and it was not treated in any way, and everything is what is uh, supposedly a disaster, but. It's, you know, shaking things up and seeing how the bricks fall and helps us, helped us make a different kind of album. And after doing albums together for nine years, we needed to do something different. That's what I thought. When he first called me up, I was like, no, that's a bad idea. But then I was like, well, but what the hell? I mean, we got to do something different. So maybe this is what we need to do different this time. And we've been doing... Four, three, three or four albums in his place since then. So you know, it's it's um, it's a different experience, and I like to work around different kinds of problems, and or maybe not problems, but just like uh, you know, here's a new situation. Make the best of it. Get something different. You didn't think you were gonna get in the first place, but. Uh, but there's not only one way that everything can sound. Everything, a guitar can sound in 200 million different ways and still be cool. So we'll just go with one of the other ones. <laughs> exactly. So, final question. This one's from Mickey Flynn. And he says, You're known for pumping your mixes heavily, but in a very musical way. Any chance you might be able to explain your compression process to us? Um, yes... I have done some mastering in the past that I'm not very proud of. <laughs> I'd like to to state that first. <laughs> some records out there, I mean, you know, you do something and you think it's right and everybody likes it, everybody agrees, or maybe I did a mastering and the band was like, yeah, but can you make it louder? And then you fall into that, you know, pit of pleasing the band who's actually paying the the bill here and it's actually their record not my record and then sometimes two months later you go like oh i shouldn't have done that (laughs) and it happened so that i have to say that first it's not like i i go out of my way to try to make everything the loudest record in the world but um the, com- the making it loud is I, I don't even I don't think it's I like to hear a bit of pump going on like what people would probably usually call SSL master bus compression from back in the day when I used to mix on SSL desk I think sometimes what people refer to as the master bus compression might actually just be pushing the the faders too hard or something because I noticed the whole uh, or just pushing the desk so hard that it starts to you know compress and I like that pump from the bass drum but um, but it doesn't work for everything it works for bouncy limp biscuit uh, ectomorph kind of stuff but it doesn't necessarily work for 
faster stuff like mm-hmm. Slayer type riffing and stuff. It doesn't really work if you got the the whole mix going when the beat is like 240 Duga style. I have a preset that I load in and which I know, which I have, you know, developed over time that has a, a four band limiter that touches everything and then a soft clipper or something at the end and some EQ and that I know gets me 90% of the way and um, and then it's usually just a, a, a question of EQ from that point there was a time when I when I tried all all kinds of different things on my mastering but I found quite a few years ago but I learned my lesson well like one I, I remember this one record I did like I don't know 10 years ago or something and and I had like 10 different things going on in the mastering and then when it was like two days before they had to I had to deliver the master and and I was still like, oh, I'm not sure this really sounds as good as it could. And then I tried to turn everything off and it sounded a million times better. Isn't it funny when that happens? <laughs> and that's, yeah, yeah. And that's when I, 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 I made a note to self that day to always try to not do anything. And that's really what I do in my mastering is really try to keep it very simple because when i'm when i'm mixing and then mastering my own thing it's not really a good time to start to pull out all the plugs and do all kinds of things because it's just continuing the mix work and that's not something you need to do in the mastering if you get if i get myself in that position it's a bad place to be i need to mastering is a very simple pre- procedure for me uh, if I need something more done to it, then I would have to get someone else to master it. And, you know, what I, I mentioned the guys at Cutting Room in Stockholm before. Like one record I did for a Norwegian band called Benia Reach, which is an amazing band, by the way. If uh, Kind of like slow Meshuggah, I guess. It's not so fast and up-tempo, but uh, all kinds of tricky rhythms and stuff. Awesome band. So instead of Meshuggah, it's Molasses? Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but um, they took their label wanted Cutting Room. They mastered all their records for that label. So they the record was going there anyway. And then the drummer went uh, to do the mastering in the studio and he told me afterwards that the guy just opened up the mix and said well that sounds good and then he just made it louder and that was it and then when i got the 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 final mastering it was uh, i tried to you know compare it to my own and i preferred his mastering so it's it's kind of like what you mentioned earlier about your recording mix is sounding better than when you actually start to mix. This was a case like that. I did too much in the mastering. It wasn't necessary. It already sounded good. All it needed to do was just, you know, be loud enough to compare to other records, and that was it. That's what I try to keep in mind when I do my mastering. So the majority is really what happens in the mix. And... 
I like to compress my vocals quite a bit, a lot, a re really a lot sometimes. I very often have a bus compressor on the drum bus because I like that pump, but sometimes it doesn't work and I turn it off, just like I said earlier. Um, I like to keep compress the bass to keep the low end uh, steady in my mix. And that comes from the bass, so that's the reason for that. Guitars, I usually don't compress. Sometimes if I, if I have big problems with a, with a low end, I might run like a, a four band compressor or something, but where I only use the low band to keep the low ends in, in check, like a DSR. D, D, uh, <laughs> um, but but um, other than that I try to I, it's more about finding the right place for everything in the mix so it's not necessary to do as much compression I think it's a great explanation thank you and Tue thank you so much for coming on taking the time to talk to us and being so open with your answers it's been great chatting with you can I just say that that August Burns Red record you did ruined my life for about three years because every, every scene metalcore band that came into my studio was like, dude, you got to listen to this mix, man. We need our cymbals to sound this loud and this clear. <laughs> and I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> that record sounds cool, but like you don't have the same drummer in the same room and the same, like we're not going to get that exact cymbal sound. No. And uh, and you're absolutely right. And the... the uh, I'm afraid to say so because uh, I might ruin it for some future clients <laughs> of mine. But, uh, you know, it's that record sounds that way because Matt is such an amazing drummer. And, and that record was nothing was fixed on drums. The only things we fixed on drums were like if he did had a flam between the bass drum and the snare on one of these then i would move the bass drum like five milliseconds or two milliseconds until he couldn't hear the flam anymore because i couldn't <laughs> and but as far as playing wise nothing was tampered with on that record and it's uh, the miking I remember a few years ago someone uh, asked me and then I found some pictures on my laptop and I was like, oh, maybe I could zoom in and see what I actually did because I also usually forget about these things. It's important until you make the decision. After you make the decision, it's not important to me anymore. So ask me what amp, guitar amp I used for, you know, a record two months ago, I probably can't remember um, because it's not important for me anymore. That's why. And the same for the miking. But as but I remember now because I went back to the pictures to you know look into it and see what the hell did I do that was so damn fantastic. And that's not it's to say it's the ACDC answer. I hung a fifty seven from the ceiling and the guy was awesome at the drums. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, everything is just standard. It's, it's, I think it was 414s for overheads, uh, some U87s for room mics, and 420, uh, 421s for toms, and a 57 on the snare. You know, everything is super standard. But sometimes you just, it, uh, you just uh, hit magic. 
and that was one of those times. Uh, he's a magical drummer, so yes, he is. Goes a long way. All I'm saying is like that was like at the time one of the most popular mixes that was referenced. It was literally every other week somebody came in with that record. They're like, make us sound like this, and I'm like, why don't you hire that dude? Because obviously he knows how to make that sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you. That was great. Yeah. It's yeah, dude, thank you. I can't say thank you for coming on enough. And uh, once again, great work on the Meshuga. It's so killer. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. I, I know you probably hear that like 18,000 times, but I think that that record is so, it's such a breath of fresh air for so many people. So you're probably going to keep hearing about it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so, because it's been six months where I was pretty nervous about how I know that this is how I wanted Meshuggah to sound. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the fans want to hear. And like I said earlier, if you f screw up Meshuggah, then people are going to want to kill you. Uh, so I was... I was extremely happy about the record. I know the guys in the band are really happy with the result as well. We, we're all very proud of what we did, but you never know until you look it up on Blabbermouth and see that first <laughs> post, what people really think. <laughs> we're going to find that guy and go to his house yeah. and take care yeah. of that problem. For yeah, you. <laughs> we'll never, never have yeah. that problem with that guy again. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll take care of that. <laughs> We're waiting to hear his mix of Meshuggah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that guy's good. mix of Meshuggah is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, of course, there've, there's been a few people who, you know, I prefer Obscene or something, and which is a fair comment. If you prefer that type of sound, then obviously you just have a different taste, and everybody is entitled to their own taste. But... For for what I wanted to do when I started working with Mishuga, what I really would like to hear when we were done, that's what we did, and that's what the guys are happy with what we did, and and then we're just very pleased that it seems that almost everybody is loving this record, which is very important to me. Great. All right, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. Visit mcdsp.com for more information. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital. All the pro plugins, one low monthly price. Visit slatedigital.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe.